0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 477 of the podcast and it is Saturday 22nd of February 2020 as I record this. So today I have an interview with New York literary agent Barbara Powell. And yes, this is normally a show about being indie, but the most successful indie authors are actually hybrid. Those with some deals with traditional publishing and some books self-published. Now remember, it's not an either or decision. I mean, it might be per book, (laughs) but you can choose per book project and most, well, all professional writers write more than one book, Um, you can choose per license. For example, you can keep English language rights and license foreign rights or license audio, keep ebook and print. Uh, And there's lots of variations on those themes. When you understand about copyright and licensing and you work, uh, if you understand all of that, then working with an agent when you know what you're doing (laughs) can be a good thing. Uh, So we talk about Barbara's tips for finding the right agent, query letters, what to do, what not to do, as well as what she is personally looking for, which is interesting. Now, we have more opportunities than ever. So I think you'll find the interview interesting, even if you are a hardcore indie. uh, I think it's, we do also discuss sort of the, the current state of the market and all of that type of thing. So on a personal note, I did have a New York agent in fact, at the same agency as Barbara uh, for a while, a few years back, like five years ago. I can't remember now. <laughs> but I didn't have any patience with the whole thing. And uh, we were pitching my existing indie books back at the time where that was uh, more acceptable, whereas now they really do want something new. And I parted ways amicably with that agent. And uh, I've seen her at Thriller fest and it's all happy, happy. But and it's incredibly normal to change agents over your author career. Anyway, at the moment, I don't use an agent. I do uh, deals myself. Um, foreign rights deals, for example. I do sometimes toy with the idea of pitching again, and I may well do it. Uh, and well, in fact, for things other than novels. So I'm actually pitching my screenplay again in a couple of weeks at an event uh, for the Matt Walker books. Um, So I am, you know, pitching projects. Uh, And so learning about pitching is always a good thing. Uh, But for now, in terms of my books, I just uh, write and uh, indie publish. So yes, you are empowered to make your own choice. There is no right answer. I'm not offering advice in this area because it's really not something I do right now. Um, But I hope you find it interesting. In publishing news this week, the Authors Guild released a report on the profession of author in the 21st century. Now, there are many flaws with these kind of reports. Um, they do cite their methods and their data, but basically, the Authors Guild is mainly consisted of um, older, traditionally published authors, and uh, so you can you can read about their methods. Uh, there are some indies included in the survey, but the vast majority of independent authors are not included in this survey. But um, it's interesting reading for some of the reasons that Barbara and I also talk about in this interview today. So, um, And also harking back to the Rebecca uh, Giblin interview on contracts. So they say advances are lower, contract terms are less favourable to authors. Uh, Authors are earning less. There are too many books. They kind of mentioned that uh, an aside a couple of times. Not enough bookstores, media opportunities have decreased, not enough grants for real literature. The money goes to a small selection of authors at the top. And authors have to market themselves, leaving not enough time for writing important books. Books and all these types of things. But um they actually quote somebody else in in there and it echoes Lee Child at Thriller Fest a few years ago, which I mentioned in this interview today, saying, No one can have the career that I had back in back in the day. So, you know, Lee Child said, I've had this career because of the way the publishing ecosystem has worked during my lifetime. But basically, everything has changed. And the report talks about the ebooks and other forces that have disrupted the market, driven down book prices. Writers have more ways to publish than ever, uh, which is one of the <laughs> few positive notes <laughs> in this report. Uh, they do also mention that it's easier to sell a debut than a third or fourth book by a well-reviewed writer, which is um the issue of the Midlist. But they do say none of these forces, industry consolidation, the decline of bookstores, the plight of the Midlist author, are new. But combined with the rise of new technologies in the last decade, these long term trends suddenly accelerate it. Now, the reason I bring this up is because the whole report seems to say, oh, things are so bad because things are not the way they were. And what they also have, um, they have a couple of bits where it's like, yes, you're almost grasping the future. But they say with self-publishing, authors are essentially pursuing a new business model, selling straight to the public. This has substantially altered what it means to be an author and has inarguably allowed some authors, mainly in the genre fields, to make a living they couldn't before. Uh, authors now need skills they didn't need before and must invest substantial time and money outside of their writing the profession of author today requires substantial marketing efforts even when working with traditional publishers and so i'm I guess I'm taking this uh report as almost a Uh, Sort of, this is what the the past looked like, and this is a glimpse of the future. But the truth is, we cannot wind back the clock. (laughs) As someone who is almost at my forty fifth birthday, I know this very well. (laughs) So what we have to do is make the most of now, but also look forwards into the future. Which is why I'm always. Uh, talking a bit about the futurist side of things. How are things going to change in the next decade? I feel that partly the reason I've been able to make a living for nine years now for as a full-time creative, uh, next year 2021 will be my decade of full-time. Uh, and I'm pretty happy that I can adjust my business model every year to make sure that I can continue to do this. But uh, one thing is very true. I do not make money in any of the ways that they talk about in this survey. So I'm not included in this survey. Uh, I don't think any of the really, really massive indies like Mark Dawson or um, Michael anderley I'm, I'm sure these people are not in this survey. <laughs> uh, Louise Ross, uh, you know, lots of people who are not, are not included in this survey. But I um, what we have to think about is what is going to happen next. And one of the most interesting things in this report is this hint about the future potentially with Amazon. I have mentioned this before on the show, uh, but essentially they're saying, they talk about Amazon's dominance. So for example, in the USA, Amazon now accounts for over 35% of all unit sales of books, 77% of online sales of new print or ebooks and 80% of ebooks overall. Uh, and this is in the USA, remember, uh, specifically. Uh, Amazon publishes its own books that compete with products it retails for other publishers. Amazon controls what may be the most effective publicity platforms in book publishing. It advances new models, which makes books cheaper or free and unlimited. Alarmingly little stands in the way of the company controlling the entire book industry in the USA. And then they say Congress should consider regulating Amazon and other major internet platforms that act as monopsonies in their respective markets. Uh, Such action is critical given that there is little publishers or authors can do at this point to stop Amazon's march toward controlling all of publishing. Now, what is so fascinating with this report is, and, and I said to Rebecca Giblin, to me, the answer is author empowerment. It's authors who have to choose what we do. So I have, and I've talked before, you know, Amazon is less than, now it's less than 10% of my revenue comes from Amazon. So that is, of my business revenue. And I did that deliberately. About seven years ago, I realised that they were about 85% of my revenue. And I was like, I'm not happy with the way this is going. I need to branch out so that I can make sure I'm not dependent on one company, which is kind of an obsession of mine. Since uh, if you don't know my story back in 2008, in the global financial crisis, when I had a day job, and we all got laid off on one day, 400 of us laid off on one day in my department. And uh, that was it. That was my one- of income disappeared with one swipe of a pen. And at um, that point, I said, I'm never going to have that happen again. I'm never going to allow one company to control my life. Um, so, but what I want to question today is what would happen if Congress did regulate Amazon? So, but, and the reason I say this seriously is because there is interest in this on both sides of the house. And This obviously has ramifications for traditional publishing. I mean, some of those big publishers have a huge amount of revenue coming through Amazon. So what would happen if that suddenly changed? What would happen if Amazon had to divest some of its businesses? What if they kept the advertising side but got rid of publishing? What if they did the opposite? Um, What are some of the ways that disruption could impact our business model? I don't want to see a report like that in 10 years' time that says, this is what happened to all of those indie authors. (laughs) Yeah, uh, what it says, what they end with here is, authors and publishers should search for new ways to publicise and market books, diminishing Amazon's stranglehold on reader attention and reader data. Publishers must work together to end structural inequalities that limit income and opportunities for marginalised authors. So what I, I like about this report is... A reflection on the bigger issues, and also a reflection on okay, what could, what would this report look like if it was disrupting the current business model for many indie authors? Uh, so that's that's my challenge uh, to you today. And to add to this discussion on publishing, Rebecca, Rebecca Giblin on the show a few uh, last month, episode 473, has just released her paper, which we did discuss uh, about, um, but the actual paper is now released. It's called Are Contracts Enough? An empirical study of author rights in Australian publishing agreements in the Melbourne University Law Review, which is an exploratory study of publishing contracts sourced from the archive of the Australian Society of Authors, which identifies serious deficiencies in the agreements generally, as well as specific provisions for returning rights to authors. So if you are thinking of signing a contract with an agent or traditional publisher after today's show, or if you have signed one and want to check what clauses might be uh, an issue, link in the show notes to Rebecca's um, paper. But also, uh, I always recommend Christine Catherine Rush's book, Closing the Deal on Your Terms, uh, agents, contracts and other things, (laughs) something like that. Anyway, Christine Catherine Rush, uh, yes, closing the deal on your, on your terms. Uh, I didn't write that down. That's why I'm not getting the title right, but you will find it. Plus, uh, Other expansion in options for wide publishing, Google Play Books are ramping back up. Now this is a really positive step. I'm pretty excited about this. As I have mentioned uh, before, 74% and I just looked it up again, 74% of mobile devices in the world are Android phones. So Google Play if Google Play Books becomes more dominant in the scene, this could be a massive deal for global sales. Now, um, that's what I think about why I'm excited about Google Play, and I have my books on Google Play for eBooks and audio. And I'm, I really hope I've I've sent some suggestions to to the team, both on the uh, podcast side, on the audiobook side, on the eBook side, on the, my website, because to me. I am in the Google ecosystem multiple times as a creator and I would love to see some kind of creator hub on Google where people could find all the things that I do that are not separated by by silo. <laughs> I think my audiobook should be linked to my podcast. Um, but anyway, you know, we would all love lots of things that, that would be great. <laughs> but but anyway, from Google Playbooks, um, they have said, The publisher sign up is now easier than ever and no longer requires an invite code or waiting period. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes or you can just go to Google Play, publish and Google, you know, Google that and you'll find it. Other recent product updates, increased revenue share. So basically, they've gone to the Amazon revenue share, 70% split on eBooks, sold to users in Australia, Canada, or the US within specific pricing bands. And also, they have an affiliate program, 7% commission when you link to eligible products or content. So this is interesting. You know, they are following the Amazon model, but they are Google. So I I really, really, really hope this works out. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha. Okay, my personal update this week. After last week's uh, week off, as I mentioned, I just couldn't get back into my novel, but now I am back into Map of the Impossible, and I'm still sort of getting back up to full speed. But I'm at twenty-one thousand words, and I'm having fun again. So I managed to get back into that mindset of the book. I'm looking at ancient Egyptian gods and a pathway through the underworld between between uh, our world and the borderlands, and I'm finding locations from my map walker adventures, and I'm enthusiastic. I'm back in that first draft creativity mode. And sometimes you do just need that little break. What I would say is if you are feeling the way I was feeling last week and kind of, oh, I just can't get back into this, you know, rest is good. But uh, if you do want to finish that book, you can't leave it too long. (laughs) So I was really happy for that week off. Um, My plan at the moment, uh, because I've got so much happening in March and April, all kinds of uh, thing conferences and speaking and stuff going on so I'm really not intending to rush this draft um, and it will probably be middle of April I reckon before I have finished it and so May probably June before the book's out uh, and then the uh, the trilogy I will be putting together into a box set. I I said I wasn't going to narrate the books, but now I'm thinking maybe I will. So I'm still going backwards and forwards on that. But anyway, point being back into the book, which is good. Also, in terms of filling the creative well, uh, I've talked a lot about my walks along the canal and I have now put up a article, a blog post with a description of the walk and my photos. So you can go to booksandtravel.page forward slash canal and uh, see my walk along the Kenneton Avon canal here in Bath. And uh, it is wonderful. Also, I was on the NaNoWriMo YouTube channel this week talking about self-publishing. Uh, so what to do after you've written your book. Uh, it's, it's really for beginners. Um, and I'll link to that in the show notes. In useful stuff, talking about uh, beginners, uh, Mark Dawson and I will be doing a 101 session on how to get your first or your next 10 book reviews. So this is really aimed at those of you who are at the beginning of your author journey or those who want to revisit the basics, or I guess those of you who are not happy with the number of reviews that you have on your books. And let's face it, sometimes that's all of us. (laughs) So we'll be going through how to get book reviews in an ethical manner, according to the terms and conditions, and also how to incorporate getting book reviews into your general marketing process. So it's an ongoing situation over time. Plus, we'll be doing a Q&A on all things self-publishing. So you can register for your free place and ask us anything It will be on Thursday 5th of March, 3 p.m. US Eastern, 8 p.m. UK. And as ever, you can register to join us live uh, or you can register for the replay to go to thecreativepen.com forward slash M-A-R-5. So short for March 5th. Um, So thecreativepen.com forward slash M-A-R-5, Mar 5. Link in the show notes. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. And first up, a shout out to Jenny Roman, who says, listening to the podcast while mucking out and bringing the horses in out of the bog that their paddock has become. Thanks, Storm Dennis. Yes, it has been pretty stormy here. Um, And thank you for the picture of you with the horses, Jenny. I really love that. And it's been a while since I've um, sort of said, Please do send pictures. So please do send pictures of wherever you are listening to the show. I always love to see a bit of your world, a glimpse of your world, and it's so funny. Like that's this why I've finally done that canal post because the canal. I I mean I'm going out after this, after I've finished recording, uh, to walk along the canal, and it's like it's part of my life. And to give you a glimpse into it, it's only a glimpse, but I love also seeing your pictures. So yes, please tweet me at The Creative Pen with pictures of where you are listening to the show. On the fight scenes from last week, Dawn says, OMG, thank you. This just helped me finally decide how to fix up a chapter I've been working on for a while. It was too slow, too much information and no tension. (laughs) I was glad it helps. Uh, Brendan P. Kelso says, thank you for bringing up the different energy levels in your podcast. I know exactly what you mean and appreciate you putting words to my feelings. Some days I'm just not in the groove because my headspace is on a different part of my business, like taxes. (laughs) Yes, I was there as well. (laughs) Um, And... This also uh, returns me to the survey, which I'm still going through. It has literally thousands and thousands of questions, but one, uh, quite a lot of questions on how can I write every day. And I, I, I've i said before, I'll say it again, I'm a binge writer and I've a- kind of project-based writer, I do not write every day. Well, I might write some things like I just wrote the introduction to this podcast, but I'm not writing for a book. Um, You know, I'm not working on a specific project every day of the year. I work on a project and then I move that through its phases and then I work on another project. So everyone does things differently. You don't have to write every day. Some people do. But as we just talked about here, the different energy levels might mean, and let's face it, real life. <laughs> might mean you can't write every day, but don't feel guilty. Uh, just get back to it when you can. Oh, uh, Gil Grimes says, loved your rant on the February 17th show. As a palliative doctor, I see this often. Live life. You will always do the best you can in any given moment. It is regret at the end that hurts so much. Thank you, Gil. I really appreciate that. Um and finally, Kate Craig says, oh, on my comment around mediocre, Kate says, we have to keep writing, mediocre or otherwise. The world needs us to live our creativity and tell our stories. That's what creates real change for the better. And absolutely, I, I this mediocre comment keeps going around my head. If you, if you didn't listen to last week's show, go and have a listen because I basically talk about, is it worth writing when we feel like we are mediocre or average? <laughs> or just not that great. (laughs) And yes, uh, we we should. Right. So today's show is sponsored by my own how to write a novel course. Did you know I had a course on how to write a novel? Because actually, I do know how to write a novel at this point. And yes, from idea to finished manuscript is the tagline. Is it your dream to write a novel but you just don't know where to start? Have you started writing only to run out of ideas? Are you suffering from self-doubt about whether you're good enough to write a novel? And uh, do you feel overwhelmed by all the information and craft books out there? If you want to strip everything back and learn a step-by-step basic process to writing your novel, check out my course, How to Write a Novel. And uh, basically, I'm calling it sort of, in fact, I might even write a book called The Iceberg Method, because what I do is I give you what you need above the waterline, with the understanding that there's a hell of a lot more to learn about the craft, but there's only certain things you need in order to write a novel for the first time. Or, to, you know, if you're feeling like you've written some books and they uh, haven't worked out that well, maybe this will help. So you can find all my courses, including how to write nonfiction and productivity for authors at thecreativepen.com forward slash learn. And uh, yeah, I'm actually thinking of doing a an, another mini course on multiple streams of income since it's, uh, it's about time I <laughs> did another one of those. Right, so this kind of sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons Thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon It means a great deal And thanks to new patrons this week Lynn Newman and Kevin Dunn I really appreciate your support Uh, It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue And you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra Q&A audio Including the backlist, so lots of uh, audio fun. Uh, You can support the show at patreon.com, P A T R E O N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Barbara Powell is a literary agent at the Irene Goodman Literary Agency in New York. She's also a magazine columnist at Writer's Digest and the author of Funny You Should Ask, Mostly Serious Answers to Mostly Serious Questions about the book publishing industry. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and your journey into publishing. And what do you love about being an agent? Oh, well, okay, that's a a long
1: story and then a quick answer. So um, I have a secret history as a film and television actress in Los Angeles. But when the buzz kind of started wearing off about being on stage, um, I did a lot of comedy to sketch improv and stand up. I started looking around for what else I wanted to do and my husband was really, I was newly married at the time and he was really insistent that I would make an amazing literary agent and I said, why? And he said, well, you love to read and you love your own opinions, which fair (laughs) enough so I did what I think everyone should be doing when thinking of a career change is I tapped every avenue I had to set up informational interviews so I set up interviews with editors and agents in order to figure out what side I wanted to gravitate towards and it became very apparent very quickly that the agenting side was the right side for me I love agenting I love the industry Um, on the agent side you know you only eat what you kill right so you're a feast or famine you depend on yourself and only yourself so there's a lot of unknown in that, and there's a lot of risk-taking, and my personality fits very well with that. Where on the editorial side, you're so deeply mired into the creative, which is wonderful, and you have a paycheck you can depend on, and you have a 401k, and you have health coverage. It's just, to me, the, the idea of depending on myself for uh, my income was much more appealing, and the idea that I could take on anything I wanted. I can take on a picture book, I can take on a memoir, I can take anything there is anything that I'm excited about, I can take on. So that is both the journey of me being an agent and uh, the idea of what I like about working in publishing is being able to be a conduit to facilitate art no matter what genre it comes in.
0: Mm, Fantastic. And it's interesting. So you mentioned improv and comedy there because Mm -hmm. I think I was quite surprised uh, because I've known of your uh, reputation in the industry. Oh, dear. this is book is very kind of funny. It's uh, it, so. so t- t- tell us a bit more about that. Why? Why go with this funny angle with the with what many people think is very serious? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that you say you know of my reputation because yeah, I can be pretty ferocious. But also, I think one of the most important things in life and career, and no matter what you're doing, is you got to have a couple laughs along the way. So yeah, I do have a history in stand up and sketch and improv, and I find that even as an agent that helps if you have a couple of you know different situations you're in who doesn't gravitate towards the one that's going to be handled with you know, professionalism and panache, but a little bit of laughter along the way. We could all use a little more laughter. So for me, it was it was a natural evolution to start incorporating a lot of my comedy into my business, just because why not? I mean, we're all so serious all the time, and there's such high stakes involved in people's art and their dreams coming true. So it's fun to bring a little levity to the situation. And I think in the case of the book with Funny You Should Ask, it was the same thing. There's so many questions out there, and there are a lot of resource materials out there for those questions, but I wanted this to be enjoyable and also to demystify a bit of publishing in itself. So to do that and have a little laughter puts everyone at ease, right?
0: Oh yeah and I, I think I enjoyed it more because of that because there are a lot of books about publishing but yours mm-hmm. I was like oh hey this is different um So it was quite <laughs> unexpected I, I really enjoyed it so the book um I mean you, you mentioned there being deeply mired in the creative and the book starts with craft yeah uh, and I think that's really important because a lot of people you know will come to some of the other aspects of publishing but the craft really is super important. So what are some of the things uh, in a in opening pages or a pitch that will instantly make you reject an author from a craft perspective?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. I think one of the most, one of the more obvious ones is, of course, like a rudimentary uh, understanding of basic construct. So if it's just sloppy writing, a lot of misspellings, not a lot of attention to detail, that can be a little off-putting. But really, sometimes it can be more subtle. For example, um, I'm sure all the authors out there know this, but the idea of telling versus showing. When you are allowing a character to explore themselves and the plot rather than just telling about the character. Like if the book opens and it's a woman looking in the mirror and she's saying, Oh, my name's Barbara Powell and I'm five foot four with blonde hair and blue eyes. I mean, just telling that's info dumping. That can oftentimes turn me off right away if you just get info dumping and telling. And also the ratio of dialogue to narrative, while subtle, can sometimes be really interruptive to pacing. So if you have too much dialogue and not enough narrative, we're really just grazing the surface like a stone skipping across the top of a lake. To get to know these characters where if you are having a ratio of narrative to dialogue where we can really sink into the atmosphere and get our five senses involved in the showing of what's happening in the story. It's a much stronger foot forward.
0: Mm. That's really interesting. You talk there about that dialogue and narrative mix. Mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. I've really noticed that in books um, that, you know, read, especially in thrillers, because I know, you know, thriller authors and mm-hmm. I read a lot of thrillers. And I'm like, why is there so much dialogue in this? Like, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it feels almost like a screenplay. So uh, fascinating that you mentioned that. So I guess some of the things there, you could reverse them and say that uh, are what you want. But what about the things that make you, yes, I want to read on, I want to read another page, another page?
1: Well i think you bring up a good point right there about thrillers because i mean in in all books let's be honest a general statement is is pacing is important but in thrillers pacing is king so you might see some of the some authors especially when they're on books 18 19 20 and they're tearing through it is more dialogue heavy and it is more dependent on short chapters in order to give the audience that feeling of breakneck pacing. Um, And so pacing for me is important, but also I don't want to read about plots. I want to read about characters doing things that make plots happen. So my favorite type of book is an an every person, a man or woman in, in the moment before the ordinary becomes extraordinary. And then the book takes off from there.
0: Yeah, that's super. And then what about in the pitch email? Because I feel like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've written a number of books now and and I feel like a a book is almost easier to write than a few paragraphs (laughs) to to someone or, you know, the the back of the book and that type of thing. So what would be some tips for pitching uh, agents?
1: Okay. So the verbal pitch is one thing. The query letter is another thing, the elevator pitch, the log lines. So let's kind of break it down. So first we're going to start with my favorite cheat ever, which is the query letter being just the hook, The book and the cook. So, the hook would be your opening line of your query letter. And you'd say the name of your, the title of your book, the word count, a couple of comp titles, and away we go. And the next part would be the book. And that's four or five lines of premise, like old school overview, not plot, but premise of what the book is. And the third section is the cook. And that, of course, is you. And in that section, I'm looking for you to answer why this book, why me, why now. It can literally be, I have my MFA, my PhD, my, all my letters ever. Or it can be, I was at my daughter's softball game tournament over the weekend and an idea struck me and I started writing it longhand. And by the time I finished six months later, I realized I had a book. It can be anything ab- about why this book, why me, why now? But that's a quick and easy, dirty trick. And I will tell you, this is just going to also just blow this out of the water. But sometimes I will read the first line, that hook, and I'll skip the rest of the query and get right to the pages because I think, oh, this sounds interesting. Or, oh, this person knows how to talk about their book and knows some good comp titles out there. And I'll jump to the pages and then I'll go back to the query letter after reading those first 10 pages.
0: Mm. And what makes good comp titles? Great
1: question. So comp titles cannot be phenoms. You cannot compare yourself to Stephen King or James Patterson or J.K. Rowling or all people who are phenoms. What we want to do is find books that are three years or less from today's date and books that have similar audiences and that your intent for your audience is similar to that, but also books that have done well enough that they make a mark, that they're somebody that we can say, okay, if this book is like that, then this audience might gravitate towards it. And don't worry, once you and I partner up, I have tons and tons of comp titles, but for you to come to me with them helps me to also understand it's like a little tip of the hat to let me know that you know how to speak within the industry and that you're aware of what's out there right now and where your book fits on the shelf. Mm.
0: Yeah, I feel like a lot of people get comps wrong because it's either something really old or a dead author or like you say, a a phenom, I guess you mean like Mm -hmm. a phenomenon, like a really famous...
1: Correct. Yeah. And I, it's so easy to do, right? It's so easy to be like, well, this is like Dean Koons. This is like JK. This is like, But it's not. It's just not because those are outliers. Um, and I think what you can do, and this is what I tell everyone, and it's good for just like the woo-woo mentality of it, but go to the library or the bookstore and go to the shelf on which your book will be shelved. Go alphabetically, put your finger where your name would be, and then the books to the left and the right of them, pull those out and read them. Buy them or check them out or read them because those people got published, made it to the same shelf. And I'll give you a starting base from which to understand, you know, especially you can look to the acknowledgements and find out who their agent was and who their publisher is, of course. And you can start making a list for
0: submissions. Ooh, that is a good tip. I like mm-hmm. that one. <laughs> it's almost like I do this for a living. <laughs> yes. Well, I think the other thing there is um, who to send that to. So what makes a good fit for an agent?
1: Oh, wow. This is going to sound insane, but it's it's like a relationship. It's really hard to describe. Um, a good fit for an agent, first of all, is someone you have researched that that does the genre that you work in, someone that is at a reputable agency, even if they are a new agent. And but they're at a reputable agency, they're incredibly viable. Because then we're talking about the difference between a newer agent who has more bandwidth and an agent who's more experienced that may not have as much bandwidth but has an increase in contacts. But when you have a newer agent at an established agency, they have both because they have bandwidth and they also have the ability to use the contacts of their mentors, correct? Mm-hmm. So you can't really go wrong. So your list should include both agents that are recently acquiring and also some some hearty staples within the industry. And I would say you're going to want to send out 20 to 30 queries um, to really paper the town and see what your response is.
0: Right. And if, because a lot of my um, listeners, uh, mm-hmm. there's people in over 200 200- countries listening hey to this show Bonjour. Hola. <laughs> so do you think I mean everyone's heard of New York publishing so should international authors like I'm in the UK is, is it better to focus within your home market or to focus on say the American market where people then license out
1: whoa that's a really great great question um I'm not sure that I can speak directly to that. What I can say is I have Canadian authors, I have UK authors, um, Australian authors, but I also have authors from the US that I've only sold into the UK because of a specific moment in time where I was like, oh, this genre is working right now in the UK and sold only into there. And then they have the licensing to come over here. So it's kind of, um, I would say case by case basis. I don't see anything wrong with starting on the whatever you know home turf you have, but it doesn't dissuade me at all when someone is from somewhere else to sign. Them. It doesn't dissuade me.
0: Mm, brilliant. So I love what you said earlier about liking uh, the idea of being depending on yourself. And you mentioned eat what you kill, yeah. uh, which I love because that's essentially the basis of the independent author, uh, yeah. and many listeners and myself included, um, what some people call self publishing. Uh, but that is kind of how we do it. But many authors also want to be hybrid, um, mm-hmm. you know, want to put some books into traditional publishing. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on like, if you're getting pitched by someone? Someone who is in an, an indie author, do you want to know, or do you think it's better to not be talking about that?
1: First things first, I just want to know what their book is. And if I fall in love with it and we want to move forward together, yes, at, at some point it would be nice to know what the what your publishing history is, what your previous experience is. But for me, it's always going to come down to the book itself. It's always going to come down to how passionate I feel about the current project. And so at that point, it doesn't really dissuade me. If you are a hybrid author or you want to continue maintaining your, your indie publishing, that's fine by me. The only value that that can sometimes bring is if you're like, well, I sold 200,000 copies over the last two years of my, then great. I definitely want to know that on the outset. But the rest of that, it's always going to come down to the passion I have for the project in hand.
0: Yeah, it's so it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I uh, I've thought about this a lot as to whether one should pitch with another name to almost completely separate that. What are your thoughts on using different pen names for different projects?
1: Well, I've had authors do that in the past. Um, it, again, I would say it's nuanced; it's a case by case basis. So, especially if you want to keep your genres very separate. Let's say you write um, like uh, erotica under one name. You certainly your audience is going to be very confused to see your cozy mysteries series under that name. So we would want to make sure that your audience is aware um, that you write under this other pen name, but that it's an incredibly different genre. Um, As far as separating your, your indies from your mainstream publishing. Sure. Yeah. I just, to me, all of that is secondary to the idea of how passionate I am about the project and where I see its specific publishing path. And then the rest of it can be colored in around it.
0: Mm. And the other thing a lot of authors get told is, uh, you know, a standalone is just not enough and that people want ideas for series. Any thoughts on that? What? Who's
1: putting, whoever's putting vodka in their cornflakes in the morning needs to (laughs) knock that off. Uh, The only thing I do care about is um, if you send me a novel and it's a standalone and I call you and I say, I love it. I love you. Everything about you is fabulous. I want to hear what you're writing next. That doesn't mean a series because writers write, correct? Mm -hmm. So you are, you've written a novel. You're out there submitting it to agents But in the meantime, you've started, you've opened your (laughs) dreaded blank spreadsheet and have started working on uh, what your new novel is. So to me, I would just say, well, what are you working on now? And I I better hear an answer. It doesn't mean like I'll have it ready for you in six months. It just means this is what I'm working on now. And hopefully, especially for debut authors, hopefully it's within the same boundaries of the same genre. Because what can be difficult when you're starting out is to write, let's say you wrote a thriller and then next you come to me and you say, and now I have a sci-fi YA that I'm working on next. That's fine. That's a different conversation that we're gonna have about writing in more than one genre. The second book, especially on your debut launch, I would prefer if it's within the same commercial or literary field. Uh, It's just a little bit easier, but that's not to say you can't write in two different genres simultaneously.
0: Mm, fantastic. And then um I guess the other thing with independent authors is we've seen some quite big names uh in the industry do things like print only deals or foreign rights only mm-hmm. that type of thing. Uh what what do you think agents want? Is it all or nothing these days or or can there be sort of subsidiary rights deals?
1: Well, I've been doing this for about 13 years, and our contract, while incredibly easy to digest, it's maybe three paragraphs, the agency agreement, it covers everything. Now, specifically, if someone is a screenwriter and writing screenplays, we can go ahead and exempt that because I don't represent screenplays, um, that kind of thing. But otherwise, we are a full-service agency, so we handle the foreign rights, we handle the film rights, we handle merchandising, we handle all kinds of rights um, that can be exploited under a publishing contract. And yeah, it is whole hog and an always has been. The only exceptions, like I said, are, are uh, I would say, you know, tangential fields like screenwriting or say you are a poet, you have a poetry chapbook or something uh, that I would, we can have a conversation about, um, you know, excluding that from our contract. But no, we're full service and we're going to push every door.
0: Mm. And I guess that's the other question. I mean, there are lots of agencies out there and you mentioned yeah. full service there. Now, um, is it important in these days of Netflix and Amazon Studios to go with an agency that does do TV and film rights? You know, what's important is to have
1: an advocate that's ferocious for you. So if that in your call, when the agent is calling to offer, you will have your notebook or your spreadsheet with all your questions, right? Because we're prepared. So you'll have all your questions, and one of your questions will be, How do you handle subsidiary rights? How do you handle foreign rights? How do you handle film rights? Hopefully, what they'll say is either we have an in house team, or they'll say we have sub agents. And the sub agents will be outside agents that handle these rights and split the percentage with you. So that's a question that's important to ask. Now, if the agent is like, I, you know, work out of my living room and I don't do exploit these rights, but I sell world rights and I sell film to the publisher. That's a conversation you are going to want to have with them to say, well, what are the benefits of con- of selling both film and foreign rights to a publisher and talk it through with them? Because there are agencies that do that, that just sell the whole hog to the publisher. It's all about who's going to be the most ferocious and who's going to get you that publishing path.
0: Mm. So what are some of the misconceptions um, that authors have? I mean, to me, I still remember when I wrote my first book and I thought I would sell that book and I'd make a million and I'd retire. (laughs) So what, what is the reality of being a successful author in today's industry?
1: I think successful is a really interesting word. I keep using the word nuanced, but it's true. Uh, Success can be measured in a variety of ways, um, depending on what the author's goals are and what their current living situation is. I mean, if I was uh, a single lady and sold my and I owned my home and I sold my book for sixty thousand dollars, does that mean that I I can cover my bills and I'm successful and I can quit? You know, do. Quit everything and and just work on writing. That's that could be the case. Whereas if you are supporting a family of four as a woman and you get a sixty thousand dollar book deal, that means you're not really going to be able to you know quit your day job and move forward. So all these extenuating circumstances can decide what success looks like in a measurement. There are two types of what I say to my authors. There's quantitative and qualitative. So I usually ask my authors to sit down and figure out what are your quantitative, what are your measurable goals with this book? And what are your qualitative? What are the ones that you just hope to have? Of course, under that would be, you know, Sunday times and New York times positioning. And then there would be, um, a quantitative would be, I'd like to sell 50,000 copies in my first year or that kind of thing. So just really identifying that quantitative and qualitative goals, can also contribute to success in their own way, but understanding that some are pretty nebulous and nuanced and some can be you know concretely reached. Um, so success is all about what you make of it. I've done books for four figures that have then gone on to get five figure royalty checks for for in, in perpetuity. and I've done books that sold for a million dollars that never earned out. So it's all dependent on what your view of success is.
0: Just in that, because, you know, many of us have heard of this sort of death spiral with the people who get a very big advance, don't earn out, next book, you know, then it just goes down and down and down. So is it actually better to start small and get bigger? uh, Or is that even available to people now when publishers seem to want big debuts? I
1: seem to have uh, stories that cover the gambit on that. Uh, I have stories that, again, like I have the one that was a massive deal that never earned out, and I have several that were smaller that earned out. And then I have the middle guys. I mean, they're all, again, it's so nuanced. And I, this comes back to a greater thing too. I always speak to with my clients is keep your eyes on your own paper. Like you, again, you're setting your goals. You're figuring your path out, looking to the right and left and saying, well, why did that person get this marketing? Or how come this person got this in their contract? Or what that's, they didn't write, you didn't write their book and they didn't write yours. This is your publishing path. So whether or not the, the initial advance demonstrates how successful the book is going to be is, I mean, if that was true, I would just have a crystal ball and we'd be having this phone call in my yacht, but it's not true. I mean, there is so much that goes on, especially the subjectivity and the zeitgeist of what's going on in the world around us. So what I can say is planning and understanding where your book fits on the shelf and how you best can, you know, get in there and drop the brick on the gas pedal for your own publicity and marketing. That's your focus, not necessarily what else is going on and what's what's deemed to be successful by who got paid what. Yeah, it's just natural though, isn't it? The comparison, course, yeah. I just- <laughs> Yeah, but that's why I'm gonna just like get an air horn and honk it at anyone. and they're like, um, I heard so-and-so got this and I just wanna be like, uh, okay, listen really closely and just honk an air horn really hard into the phone because it just doesn't matter. That's not what we're doing.
0: Mm. So uh, you did mention marketing there. And I feel like yep. this this is a really big deal. A lot of indie authors are like, oh, I wish I could get a publisher and then they would do all the marketing. <laughs> so <laughs> what is the reality of what, uh, what agents and publishers want in terms of marketing?
1: Well, I think you heard my deep chuckle there for a second. Um, above all, and I think indie authors are really uniquely suited to understand this. This is a business and actually we work for you in a sense. Um, I work for you as an agent. The publisher is working for you to help, you know, package and promote your book. But this is going to come down to you. It really is. There's, I've seen, you know, eight page publicity and marketing plans and I've seen single page publicity and marketing plans. Again, you are going to be the determinant factor on how hard you are able to push on your avenues the people that already know that you're out there the people that are be interested in being the audience in being your readers um, it is a partnership we all work together we're all wearing the same color jersey when we get on the field but that is not a sit back and put your feet up and watch the publisher do the job for you that those that has never been my experience and I can't imagine it ever will be
0: Mm. And you mentioned marketing plans there. Do you, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, again, it does come back to the story first, but do, sure, you, or, yeah. do you appreciate an author who does bring a marketing plan to the table?
1: Yes. If it makes sense, if it's something that's like, I, you know, I plan on a- approaching the Sunday times and asking for a review or what I'm like, wait, who, how do you know? Like, I, how do you know these people? It can't be a wish list. it has to be concrete sets. For example um, you know, I attended this university and I was in this group and it happens to be a national group and they are willing to have me either Skype in or zoom in and do a virtual tour. And that will reach over a hundred thousand people in the next five months. I mean, that is a valuable marketing tool um anything else that you can bring to the table in so far as relationships you have with um, periodicals or publications where you know that they would be happy to have a short interview with you especially online and providing content online especially if there's a hook in your novel having to do with something that then can be branched out to other tangential avenues online so yes it's always helpful to come with ideas but they can't be wackadoo um i'm gonna call oprah until she answers kind of stuff <laughs>
0: And you mentioned the zeitgeist there, and Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people do take a while to write their book. Sure, um, but the zeitgeist, and then even if one gets a deal, it might be a year or even two years before that book comes out. So, how important is the zeitgeist when we are thinking about writing?
1: I mean, everything that's happening right now is that's popular. Your, if I sold your book today, it's not coming out for probably you know, 12 to 18 months. So what we do is we, again, look at the quality, we're always gonna come back to craft, but it's not that important. And also what I like to... (laughs) is to be the tip of the arrowhead on whatever's coming next. So kind of put my feelers out, try to see where the genre that you're writing in is going to see where it's overly saturated, to see where there might be some shelf space, and try to push that angle as well. The zeitgeist is much more important when we get into nonfiction, of course, um, and sometimes books can be crashed in that arena in order to get them out quickly, or if they're related to a specific holiday, or they're related to the Olympics, or they're something like that can be uh, a little bit more hinged on the zeitgeist. But what we we want is good stories, good books, good characters. And so staying true to whatever's happening right now is not in your best interest. Staying true to your muse is in your best interest.
0: Mm. And then you mentioned you've been uh, in the business for 13 years, I think. About, yep, almost. yeah, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what has changed in the 13 years that make now a very different time in the publishing industry?
1: I mean I think exactly what you said it's a very exciting time for the indie publishers right I mean like you guys are out there you're doing your, you're making your own products you're out there you know what it's like to be a publisher a marketer a manager a tour guide a, all these things like a a publicist I think it's over my span that has been kind of the most exciting time is just this expansion of different avenues where people can pursue their art and have their art you know reach their readership I love it
0: And uh, at Thriller Fest one year, um, where Uh I met you one time years ago, uh, Mm -hmm. Lee Child said, uh, and of course, Lee Child has just kind of resigned and given his books to his brother. um, But he said, uh, no one can have the career I have had. Now, because the bookstores are not the same, the publishing is not the same, and I think that was a bit of a downer to most people in the room, <laughs> of course, mm. everyone would love a lead child career, but um, what do you think about that statement is it is it have things just changed so much now that uh, an author has to have a very different kind of career?
1: Well, I mean, what's the opposite of change? Stagnation. Who wants to stay stagnant? Everything changes. And I think one of the most important things that has been introduced over the last 13 years is the idea that we're not competing against other books. We're competing against media. So rather than look on the subway in the morning, I'm riding the subway and I look down and people are on their phone looking at their social media when 10 years ago, I looked on the subway and everyone had a book, you know? And so I think that's what we're more competing against is the idea of there's so many Platforms for art. There are people making web, you know, five minute webisodes. There are people that have two hundred thousand followers on their Instagram, taking beautiful pictures of food. There are so many other avenues where the the attention of the audience has has been fractured and branched out. That's fine. I can still point to roughly, you know, a billion success stories within the publishing industry. Again, on how you measure success. So. uh, Any career that started, however, he's been writing 25 years ago, any career that started 25 years ago in any industry is not going to look like a career that starts today. Just there's, it's not possible. So for me, it's not, it's not something to be disappointed. It's not something to take the air out of the room. It's something to be excited about. We want newness. We want, the good news is every year billions of readers are made, right? Like I mean, so many <laughs> right now, so many babies are being born and they're going to read picture books and then they're going to read middle grade and then they're going to read YA. And so there's, we're not going to reach a shortage of audience. What we need to make sure that we're understanding and recognizing is that so many media f- platforms are in competition with us and finding new ways to stand out and, and make sure the readers know that we're there.
0: Uh, and, and actually while you're on that other thing, this sort of competition, cause I now read pretty much all nonfiction I read in audio, so I you oh. know, just and I read audio at sort of one point mm-hmm. five speed and just Ew, That's how I do it when I yeah. do my work out. <laughs> I love nonfiction on audio. Oh
1: my gosh! Although right now I'm listening to my author Samantha Downing, uh, with my lovely wife is nominated for an Edgar here, so now I am listening to all the books in her category, and I'm it's just so much fun. I love audio books, love them.
0: Yeah, me too. And and this is something I think is really important. So if, if uh, you mentioned you don't take screenplays, but do mm-hmm. you take pictures for audio first projects?
1: I don't. No, um, that is not my strongest avenue of pursuit. And you'd be better suited to find an advocate that has that as one of their strongest avenues of pursuit.
0: Yeah, I guess it was meant to be a wider question of are agents in general looking for sort of this audio first? Or is that more go to uh, radio drama? programs and stuff like that, because because Audible are open for direct pitches for audio first products. And Mm then, you know, they're buying up rights for audio products. But I wondered if that is something that you're excited about, or that, that, you know, agents are now looking at as a different uh, subsidiary right? I'm sure they are. I can't speak directly to it because it's not
1: something that I excel at. So I'm sure that they are. And I'm sure some Googling will, will bring you a list of agents or at least some deals from agents that do the audio mm. um, first or audio only. But to me, I can't really speak to it from a place of knowledge because it's not where I'm focusing. Mm, no, sure.
0: Okay. So we are, we're almost done, but uh, it is January 2020 as we speak to so the beginning of uh, another decade. Uh, so yes. what are you excited about? I mean, I like that you sound excited about lots of things like I am, mm-hmm. but um, what are you excited about in terms of where publishing might be going in the 2020s
1: i am really excited about um we have so long to go on this but i'm si- excited about the diversity i'm starting to really see um i think there are so many stories to be told from so many lenses and we're starting to see more of those lenses we have so far to go but it is happening and i am so excited to to be be in this industry during this time because of that. I also just think there are all, like I said, there are always stories to tell. And I'm, I know that my next client is out there and it's so exciting. I mean, every query I open, every click, I, I hope this is the one, is this the one? And it's just a very exciting time to be a storyteller. And I am just thrilled and honored to be someone who can facilitate, facilitate stories.
0: Brilliant. So where can people find you and the book online? Oh, well, thanks. Um, you can go to
1: funnyyoushouldaskbook.com and then you can find me. And I know you warned me against this, but hey, you guys are out there, right? You can find me with your query letter and your first 10 pages at barbara.queries at com. I did it, Joanna. You warned me, but I
0: did it. (laughs) No, well, you know, absolutely. And um, so, well, since you did say that, are you looking (laughs) for any particular um, projects, you know, so so you don't get
1: everything? Yeah, oh, good point, good point. So what I'm not looking for right now, and that's not to say not ever, but just right now, I'm stepping back a bit from memoir and from nonfiction. I would say right now I'm 95% fiction. With that in mind, I love the big genres. I love mysteries, thrillers, suspense, crime. I'm definitely looking for more there. But what I'm really looking for, my heart is set on I want to find an upmarket rom com without being a rom com. Like not, not a cheeky kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, um, stereotypical rom com. I like to find a grounded fiction with comedic elements. And with my comedy background, it's hard to make me laugh. Like, <laughs> so I need a I need to be reading something that makes me laugh out loud. I want to find an atypical love story that makes me laugh out loud there.
0: Oh, that is cool. Okay. So if you're out there, definitely email Barbara. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. That was great. Oh, This has been my privilege. Thank you. So I hope you found the discussion with Barbara interesting today and that it has given you a perspective around what agents are looking for. Maybe you even have her perfect project. (laughs) So in the next show, I'll be talking to Michelle Cobb from the Audio Publishers Association about why audiobooks are the fastest growing segment in publishing, thoughts on marketing, as well as global expansion and changes in listener habits. So really fascinating to talk to, Michelle. So happy writing. See you next time!